BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Republican Chris Stewart plans to resign his seat in Congress, shrinking Kevin McCarthy's majority. We have a great show today. Eugene Carroll and Roberta Kaplan stop by to talk about their victory against Donald Trump and what it means to finally hold him accountable. Then we'll talk to the Washington Post Jeff Stein about what actually is in this big debt ceiling deal. But first, we have author of Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, NBC's John Allen. Welcome back to Fast Politics Fan Favorite. John Allen. Molly John Fast, how are you? I'm good. So let's talk about what's happening right now. Republicans in the Rules Committee. What's going to happen with the debt ceiling? The debt ceiling is going to be raised. It's not clear exactly who's going to vote for it, what the process will be. But one good rule for watching Congress is that if the Speaker of the House wants something to happen and a majority of the members, not the majority party, but a majority of the members want it to happen, it will happen. And I think also it looks like in the Senate, that's also true. No, no doubt about it. I mean, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to have fights over the debt ceiling. There will be enough votes to get it through the Senate. Look, there may be some drama over the next like 24, 48, 72 hours. But the truth is, it is very difficult for somebody who wants to block this from happening to actually block it from happening. They can delay, they can throw up roadblocks, they get angry about it. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of members of, of Congress want this thing done and off their plate. And they want to make sure that the nation doesn't default. That's going to happen. I mean, anytime you've got Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden agreeing on something, 
you got, you know, a broad swath of the uh, American public behind it, too. So let's talk about what is in this debt ceiling. What they're going to do is basically suspend it for two years. So it won't be a problem until after the next presidential election. So we won't be back in the same spot six months from now or a year from now. They're going to basically put in place some uh, spending caps for discretionary spending, which is the annual spending that Congress does on basically all the domestic programs you can think of, the non-military spending. They are going to rescind, I think it's about $28 billion of money that was put out as COVID relief You know, in previous legislation. Uh, I think it's a mix of what Biden did at the beginning of his presidency and some of the leftover from the end of the Trump administration and you know a few other bells and whistles. Yeah. I mean, this seems like a victory for Biden. I mean, he didn't have to make that many changes. You know, I mean, the one thing in this debt ceiling package that people don't like is the mandatory work requirements with SNAP. But those already existed and the age is is pretty high and there are a lot of exceptions. I mean, doesn't it seem like a win for Biden? So, right. They're, they're going from 50 to 55 for the uh, age you would have to have work requirements for a couple of the, for SNAP. But here's the thing. If you were one of the people that all of a sudden has uh, work requirements that didn't before, it really sucks for you. It's, it's terrible. In terms of the actual population, that's going to affect it's pretty small. To your point, there are exceptions. The question of whether Biden won, absolutely Biden won, because the alternative of the nation going into default and the economy potentially going into a tailspin on his watch was politically unthinkable. Not to mention, obviously, for the health of the economy and the health of the country. So, yes, it's a win for him if this gets done. Uh, it is also a win, in theory, for the country. <laughs> right. He, he did give up more than he said he was going to give up. He said he would never negotiate or said he wouldn't negotiate on uh, raising the debt ceiling. And he did do some negotiation. And there's some things that progressives are going to you know, be unhappy with here, including those work requirements we talked about. But, you know, at the end of the day, most of the Congress could be able to vote for it. And it prevents what could have been a catastrophic political situation for Biden. So, yeah, it's a W for him. I don't know if it's the kind of thing, you know, that people are a year and a half from now going to vote on and say, I'm going with Biden because he averted a debt limit crisis. But, but who knows? Well, I mean, you might not vote for it, but you certainly could theoretically vote against your economy being completely right. I mean, had we saw when this first debt ceiling drama happened in the Obama administration that our credit, our national credit was downgraded and that really tanked the market. So you could see how this could play out in a bad way for the Biden administration. Well, I, I could see how it would have had they not come to a deal. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I think, you know, potentially politically disastrous. It depends on how long it goes. I mean, if it's a day or two beyond the default point, it's probably not a big deal. But, you know, if they've been in an impasse for a long time, you could absolutely see, you know, major, major disruptions to the economy. And ultimately, when people are upset with what's happening in the world, they tend to vote against the people in power. It is easier to throw a president out than to throw a Congress out because the House of Representatives divides its districts up in ways that make it very difficult to lose general elections. Right. right? There's only a handful of districts that are competitive. Um, you know, which puts Biden and also there's you know, sort of a collective blame to the Congress, even a collective partisan blame. Even if you say, oh, it's the Republicans that did this, doesn't necessarily mean people take it out on their individual members. Whereas the president of the United States lives, lives and dies politically on, um, you know, how the country is doing when he comes up for election the next time. 
Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you about what else we're going to see now. We're going to see this debt ceiling situation continue on. And then really Congress is going to leave, right? You should not expect a whole lot to get done between (laughs) now and the 2024 election. I mean, there will be some low-hanging fruit. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Wait, I thought we were going to say this summer, not the 2024 election. I mean, there's stuff that they they probably will work on and maybe they'll get some deal on, you know, a new farm bill or something. But like with the Republican House in place, it'd be very difficult for for Biden to get anything done legislatively that's sort of an agenda item for him, you know, which is is why I think you're going to hear the White House, once this is signed, sealed, delivered, probably talk about, you know, a big accomplishment in, in getting it done. It is not an accomplishment in the way of like, you know, an infrastructure bill when you see like, you know, construction sites and right. bridges going up, um, things like that. But there aren't going to be a whole lot, probably are not going to be a whole lot of wind sticks out over the next 18 months for the White House or for anybody else for that matter. That's it. That's very dysfunctional. Welcome to the swamp. <laughs> we are going to see these supreme some Supreme Court decisions come down because June is Supreme Court season. That will very likely have reverberations in the 2024 election if history is any guide. Yeah, I mean, history being a guide, we saw reverberations in uh, the Dobbs decision in the last election cycle. And that decision is still reverberating now because what you're seeing is states actually start to implement their new freedom to restrict abortion. And there is a race to put on the most extreme restrictions among uh, Republicans. And in the case of Ron DeSantis is in that group and also in the group of Republican presidential contenders with these six-week abortion ban that he likes to talk about in Iowa and doesn't like to talk about in other places. Let's talk about Iowa. Everyone of the Republican the not Trump lane, which, which is like the California highway system at this point. Everyone in the not Trump lane is in Iowa and Trump is in Iowa, too. Yeah, it's not a lane, that non Trump lane. It's more like an ocean, <laughs> a non Trump ocean of candidates that is somehow growing. I don't know if that has to do with melting ice caps or, or right. some other phenomenon. But, you know, we're looking at Mike Pence probably getting in pretty soon. We're looking at Chris Christie probably getting in pretty soon. Possibly Chris Sununa, maybe Glenn Young. I mean, there's a whole lot of people looking at getting into this race. All of which says that they're not convinced that Trump will win, and they're not convinced that DeSantis will be the best alternative once voters have a chance to look at people. Um, as far as Iowa goes, you're gonna have DeSantis there tomorrow and the following day. Trump's gonna be there tomorrow and the following day. Of course, it's a holiday week, so I'm bad on my days, but. They're going to be there Wednesday and Thursday. Trump's doing a a Hannity Fox Town Hall from Iowa, from Des Moines on Thursday. By that point, DeSantis will already be headed toward New Hampshire, where he's got a, I think it's a four-stop swing on Thursday, and then South Carolina on Friday. But Iowa is 100% the center of the Republican political universe right now. But Democrats are not going to Iowa. Is that's because the president in search of renomination <laughs> without problem decided that he was going to change the calendar to make it help him as much as possible, which having watched politics for a while is not terribly shocking. They wouldn't want to go to Iowa where he has never gotten off the ground politically. There are plenty of reasons to not do Iowa as your first state, especially in a part, you know, with a diverse party. Iowa's not a particularly diverse state. But 
in the case of Joe Biden, moving Iowa out of first made it less likely that he would have a significant challenge to his renomination. We're going to start seeing this Republican primary field have debates coming up soon, right? Starting in August. August in Milwaukee. The best. Be there or be Donald Trump because <laughs> Donald Trump is not committed to going to the first debate, which raises the possibility that like, you know, DeSantis goes out there with a bunch of other candidates and they beat up on him instead of beating up on the front runner. Does that seem likely to you? It seems likely to me. It doesn't sound like Trump's in the mood to debate in August. So, I mean, he told, he told the Republican Party he didn't want to debate in August and they went ahead and scheduled them anyway. So he will or won't show up. But my guess is he will find a way to get himself significant attention during that time period, whether he's on the stage or not. When will we see Republican primary voting? Early next year in Iowa. I don't believe the actual date has been set. I've been double checked, but I mean, it'll be the first part of the year next year. But January, January, maybe closer to February. I mean, do you think there's a chance to stop Trump at this later date? It's very difficult to say that there's no chance that Trump will be stopped, A, given that we're so far away, B, given that he's facing a trial in Manhattan, possible trial in Georgia, possible trials in Washington, D.C. at the federal level. I think it's way too early to say that this race is over. On the other hand, I do think that that there was a theory of the case of an alternative to Trump that has kind of been blown apart. And the theory of the case was most Republicans are done with Trump. They think enough of Trump. They want to turn the corner. And all somebody else has to do is consolidate the non-Trump vote to win. And right now, Donald Trump has a majority of Republicans in pretty much every national poll which means that you could collect all of the non-Trump vote right now and still lose. I think some of those people are up for grabs. They weren't with them before. They're with them now. Could be people that move move back to another candidate. But that theory that, you know, if there was just one running against him, it would definitely be that person that has fallen by the wayside. Yeah. And again, we don't know what's going to happen, but it certainly feels like that this has gone exactly as Trump would have liked it to. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I think that, you know, the other piece of that is now that he has a majority, what it means is anybody who's going to beat him has to take a bunch of his base. Yeah, that's been a challenge. Nobody's been able to do that so far. It doesn't mean somebody can't do it in the future. But I think the only way to speak to that base is to, like, defeat Trump in some you know visible, tangible way, whether that's in debates or in states or whatnot, I, you know, I think a lot of the Trump base looks at him as the toughest customer in the room. And the way to, to get to the hearts of the folks who care most about that is probably to show that you're a tougher customer than Trump. And that is no easy feat. I mean, again, just to go back to history for a minute, Hillary Clinton won those debates. I mean, if you were scoring in like a traditional sense, Hillary Clinton won the debates or won the set of them right. I mean, collectively. Certain high points for, for Trump within that set of three debates. On the other hand, what Trump did was he delivered the messages that he wanted to to the audiences that he wanted to deliver them. So, again, if you're scoring in you know sort of a traditional sense, the points are like a fencing contest. You know what the rules are for scoring. You'd say that Hillary Clinton won. But, you know, it, Donald Trump brought a shotgun instead of uh, an, a key or a, a, instead of a foil to the fencing. <laughs> so it's a little harder to judge in traditional terms. Right. There's a precedent for Donald Trump losing a debate and still winning a nomination or winning the contest. Yes, it is possible for him to win, even if it looks to anybody who's watched this stuff before that he lost. Also, 
Just real quick question. Does anybody ever use that four-letter word for a fencing sword, EP, meet, meet, for anything other than the New York Times crossword puzzle? Nope. Yeah. I, so I apologize for, for coining <laughs> a term on, on podcasts. John Allen, please come back. Whenever you ask. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com news and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com news. Identity theft protection starts here. E. Jean Carroll is a journalist, author, and advice columnist. Roberta Kaplan is a lawyer focused on commercial litigation and public interest matters. Welcome back, E. Jean, and welcome, Robbie. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) Good to be here. Very excited to have you both here to talk about the case. E. Jean, You're like the only person who has managed to hold Trump accountable in any way. It's astonishing, Molly, that 
what you just said is true. And the reason it is true is because Robbie Kaplan, for four straight years, has stood up to every single one of his wrangling moves. And she got us to trial. She got us in front of nine jurors. They heard our truth, and we won. It's an astonishing accomplishment. And we hope other people follow in our footsteps. Right, Robbie? Sure do. Robbie, I wanted to ask you, when E. Jean came to you, and again, full disclosure, came to you through George, who who I knew, there have been other times when he's had lawsuits that haven't worked out for him, but where he's actually really been held accountable. How did you approach this case that led to your success? So when my son was little, one of the favorite books that he had that I like to read to him was called A Dog with a Bone. Ah. It had good rhymes, but I don't think that's the only reason I liked it. (laughs) There's something about that in my nature. It's probably both bad and good. I can often be like a dog with a bone. Um, And here in this case, I think it's fair to say that the entirety of of our law firm, Kaplan, Hacker and Fink, kind of stuck to it no matter what happened, no matter what the ways we were riding were, whether high or low, we just kept at it. And ultimately, we got to where we are today with a trial and a, and a, and a jury verdict in E. Jean's favor. Robbie Kaplan is relentless, <laughs> relentless. She's that way in her good humor. She's that way in her enjoyment of a good dinner. She's <laughs> that way in court. That way. I saw her give wedding vows the other day. She married two very fortunate people, and she was relentless in making sure that she sent them off to have a very happy, happy marriage. I mean, the woman, she doesn't stop. So you've had a lot of success, Robbie, with the Defense of Marriage Act. Yes. It's to be the 10th year anniversary on January 26th. United States v. Windsor. Like, we never got Roe codified in Congress, but we did get same-sex marriage codified in Congress. Do you think that that was because of this? Do you think there was some connection? Because of what? Because of you winning in in the Supreme Court. Yeah. I, I Look, I think two things happened. One, the Windsor case and Edie Windsor, who sadly is no longer with us, was the perfect plaintiff to bring that claim in a way that's very similar to Eugene was the perfect plaintiff against Donald Trump. And I can explain that. But they really were both perfectly situated to bring the claims that they brought. And I think through the litigation of Windsor, the American people really saw, which was our goal, that the marriage that Edie Windsor had to her spouse, the Aspire, was no different than any marriage anyone else ever had, and maybe in a lot of ways better, since by the time of her death was a quadriplegic, and Edie spent many years taking care of her. After we won Windsor, There was really a groundswell of litigation. I remember the first case was in Utah, of all places, where courts were saying that under the logic of Windsor, we have to allow same-sex marriages to happen. And I think what happened there is just the sheer numbers, the sheer numbers of people getting married, gay people getting married, and the resulting public acceptance made it impossible I think, for things to get turned back. Now, one could argue, while I'm sure you're thinking this, why isn't the same thing true with abortion? It sure as hell should be, given the poll numbers we're seeing today. But we are starting to see similar situations in terms of states and and various 
local elections really going very strongly against the anti-choice candidates. So maybe we're just at the beginning of the process, sadly, there. So the Trump deposition, I've heard you say this in interviews, but I need to ask you, Robbie, did you know you had him? (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, we were feeling pretty good about what he was saying in the deposition. I remember I'm speaking about that moment when he mistakes Eugene for Marla. Yeah, yeah, I was astounded by it. And, and when you read the transcript and if you watch the video, it was very clear that it wasn't a setup by me in any way. I wasn't trying to trick him. He mentioned the photograph, which he said he saw at the time. And I said, well, let me show you a copy. I think I have one here to confirm. <laughs> and that's when he pointed to Eugene and said it was Marla. Yeah, we were pretty stunned. I literally, I think, almost fell off my seat. Our job as lawyers was not to show any shock or surprise, and we we certainly tried very hard not to show it. But I can tell you that when we took the next break, (laughs) there was a lot of celebration and high fives going on among the lawyers on our team, for sure. And of course, Molly, I think the main reason why Trump did not show up for the trial was that Robbie had the deposition. And if he took the stand, it would have been pure, unadulterated murder. I don't know how he could have testified at all with uh, Robbie giving him the questions. Molly, when you read that deposition, you'll see trap after trap that he fell into. It was an amazing uh, uh, seven hours or however many. And Robbie, what happened about lunch at Mar-a-Lago? What was going on there? (laughs) (laughs) That was the other case. I I actually had been there the week before for another case that our firm has against Trump that's based on on a pyramid scheme, a multi-level marketing scheme that he, we believe he fraudulently <laughs> promoted to working class Americans. At that lunch, let me put it this way, he got very angry at his lawyers because they had graciously offered to provide us with lunch at Mar-a-Lago and he didn't know that and he was not at all happy about it. Uh, I'm not going to get into any more detail than that, but, it, but he was not a happy camper when he realized that they had made that offer to us. Eugene, I want to ask you, when you saw that picture, I think of you at that period so much because, you know, that was the period when I was growing up, when my mother was, when you and my mother were close. When you saw that picture, did you remember when that was taken and some of the color around it? Yeah. Joe Takapina, who he's an amazingly likable fellow, but he made it out like I had kept this photo on on an altar. And then I had worshipped this photo daily. What had happened is uh, when I was writing uh, the book where I just... Wait, wait, Eugene, you mean that wasn't true? (laughs) (laughs) I was looking because I wrote, uh, remember that little book called uh, What Do We Need Men For? Men For, yeah. I was looking for cheerleading pictures and I stumbled on it in an album. And I thought, oh my God. Then I remembered that it was probably back taken at the time when I was writing for Saturday Night Live because I'm with uh, John Johnson, one of the great guys, you know, an anchorman on TV. And your ex-husband. And my ex-husband, a great guy, um, as Trump said, a great guy. (laughs) Feel badly for John Johnson. And so I was very pleased to find it, but I completely stumbled on it. Hadn't even remembered that I had it. Didn't remember it being taken. And I did remember meeting Mr. and Mrs. Trump at the time, but I didn't real—I couldn't quite recall that there was a photo of it. So, yeah, I was very happy to see it. 
I want to ask you both about the jury selection. It's such an interesting case because you did have a juror. And later in reporting, I saw, Robbie, that you guys tried to get him taken off the jury, right? We sure did. And we we failed completely. But yes. Can you talk about that? Because that juror, when I heard he was an avid Tim Pool watcher. Tim Pool is a far right podcaster, right? Right. Let me back up. So Judge Chaplin has a practice of doing jury selection in civil cases a little bit like speed dating. There's a a whole bunch (laughs) of people in the room and he asks kind of like a lightning round of questions of each juror with all the other jurors there. And it goes very fast. And, you know, he's intending to be as efficient as possible and it's understandable. So the guy in question, the juror in question, who to this day, I have no idea what his name is. He was asked where he got his news from. And both We and the court reporter and a bunch of other people thought we heard him say Temple, a podcast called Temple or something like that. Right. And ironically, he was wearing a black jacket and black pants. And I thought, well, maybe he's an Orthodox Jew. (laughs) It didn't even occur to me that there was anything going on. And and we made the strikes that we made. and, And he was not one of the people that we struck. Then. So I think in the Daily Beast, there was an article written that said that actually the reporter there had heard it correctly, it turns out. I'd heard him to have been saying Tim Poole, who is a, he, he doesn't think he's extreme, but he's a pretty extremist kind of alt-right type guy who has a very popular podcast on YouTube. So we immediately brought that up to the judge. Everyone agreed that the mistake was mutual in the sense that ever, no one had heard that other than the Daily Beast guy. And the judge held a, a series of proceedings to decide what to do. The juror answered a number of questions, and I think Judge Kaplan correctly held that based on his answers, there was no basis for what's called a for cause challenge that he had said he could consider the evidence fairly and he would consider it fairly. And we now know it turns out that's what he did. But we did make a motion based on the fact that he he said that he listens to this podcast to exclude him because the the podcast had not only it's not only pretty alt-right, but it specifically said some things pretty negative about Eugene Carroll, which didn't make us very happy either. But we, to this day, the guy said he didn't recall hearing any of those podcasts. And to this day, I believe that he did it. You know, Robbie, Judge Kaplan was also correct about one other thing. When he, Molly, when he gave the jury instructions before they left to go make up their minds, he said it was around 1130 when he was giving instruction. Right, Robbie? Around 1130 in the morning. Yeah. And he said, now you're going to break for lunch. And if you come to a decision during lunch, you should send a note. I'm rolling my eyes. I'm thinking these jury members are such a mis- mystery to us that there right. is no way, no way they're going to come to any sort of decision about anything during lunch. And then we went off to lunch. And then, Robbie, what happened? <laughs> yeah, and then they came back that, like it took him. Uh, it was less than two and a half hours, really, with yeah. lunch break, True. but they came back in two and a half hours. Were you shocked at how quickly? I could hardly stand up. Yeah, we were all shocked. I mean, there was a lot of fear on our part, I think. I don't think anyone on our team thought that we lost, but we were very worried that they were going to, you know, you can give a defamation plaintiff a dollar, like a symbolic dollar. Right. And we were very worried that that was going to be the end result because we couldn't figure out how they'd had enough time to come up with damages. The one thing that was really clear, given the amount of time that they spent or the relatively small amount of time that they spent deliberating, is it must have been that when they came in, 
they had all made up their minds. It doesn't sound like they spent all that much time arguing about the merits. Right. It was amazing. Amazing. Molly, I've never been through anything like that. Molly, my partner, Sean Crowley, who did the trial with me, has just walked into my office. Do you mind if she joins us? Yeah, please. I was wondering if either of you, Robbie, Sean, uh, wanted to just talk a little bit about what it means to have opened the door to defamation and what that could mean for other plaintiffs. Let me begin and then everyone else should fill in. So when you think about what happened here, what Donald Trump did to E. Jean Carroll, and she explained this beautifully while on the stand, obviously he hurt her terribly when he sexually assaulted her. There's no question about that. But in terms of the harm, the lasting harm, or the harm that had the most dramatic impact, it was the defamation. Because by going out in June 2017 and saying that she was a nut job, and it was a hoax, and she was doing a part of a conspiracy with you, Molly, and, and George Conway, and a whole bunch of other people that she just made it up. He destroyed her reputation. E. Jean spent her career as a journalist and an advice columnist, someone that readers turn to for the truth and for honest, candid advice. And so to say that that person was a whack job was horribly damaging, and E. Jean lost her job, and there were all kinds of kind of reverberations from that. And to this day, there's a significant percentage of the American population who thinks she is exactly what Donald Trump says she is. Right. So we knew our, our original case was only a defamation case. And we knew going in that the greatest damage was defamation. Now, ironically, the of the various defamation claims, the greatest damage is the case that's still to be decided, or at least still to be decided on damages which is the original case, which we call Carol One, because that relates to the statements that he made that summer of 2017. And that's where the greatest damage was done to E. Jean's reputation. The expert that we used who took the stand in E. Jean's trial has calculated that there the damage figure is somewhere in the range between 10 and $20 million. And that's why we're so intent on bringing that case to a close and that's the case where we sought, where we're now seeking punitive damages based on C the CNN town hall. And why that's relevant is punitive damages can only be assessed based on a ratio of the compensatory damages, right? So if the compensatory damages are a million dollars, then constitutionally speaking, you can only get five or six million dollars in punitive damages. But if the compensatory damages, as they are in Carroll too, are somewhere on the on the range of ten to twenty million dollars. Then for punitive damages, you're talking a lot of money. So but can you explain just the nuances here? The second case is you went back to the first case. You didn't file another case. No, no, no. The first case, the first case is still pending. And the reason why it's behind is because of very complicated issues involving federal law and whether or not when Trump said what he said in June 2017, he was saying to serve himself, he was saying it to serve himself, or he was saying in order to serve the interests of the American people. Judge Kaplan, not surprisingly, given the context, concluded that he was saying it for his own personal reasons. We believe that discovery has now confirmed that. The D.C. Court of Appeals, which got the case after the Second Circuit sent it there, concluded that that is the relevant question, whether when he said it, he was too little attenuated. It's, it's old fashioned language, too little attenuated to serve the American people. If that's true, then that case will go forward. But all that's left to do in that case is just damages, because the fact that the statements, which are almost the same, are defamatory. That's now a settled issue as between E. Jean 
and Donald Trump. This is so interesting. E. Jean, do you feel vindicated? Yes. I feel like I got my name back. I feel like he dragged me through the mud. He lied about me. He said terrible things about me. And the jury said that he was lying and that I was telling the truth. So, yes, Molly, I do feel vindicated, but not just for me. This is really not just for me. This is for every woman who has had to put up with a man grabbing at her and then laughing and say he didn't do it, you know, and that's millions of women. So this was just not for me, but it was for what, uh, you know, for every woman in the nation. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Molly. Oh, it's a pleasure. Hi, it's Molly, and I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now, is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Jeff Stein. Thanks for having me, Molly. I had to have you because you are one of the only people who has read (laughs) what is in the debt ceiling deal, as we call it here. So talk to me about what's actually in there. What's actually in there is really anticlimactic, I feel like I have to say. We've been doing these stories for months and months about this epic drag-out battle between McCarthy and Biden, and it was going to maybe transform American society or destroy the economy or, you know, cause this global financial crisis. And what we got is this, like, kind of amazing nothing burger, really in, in both directions, which maybe was more predictable in hindsight than we realized at the time. The bill... I think the most important thing from the Democrats' perspective is it gets this headache off the White House's plate for two years. They don't have to think about the debt ceiling until after the 24 presidential election. The Republicans got some, I think, not really as many concessions as they were hoping for, certainly, and not as many as many people expected. But And not as many as they were bragging they were going to have. Yeah. So freezing domestic spending, which is an inflation-adjusted cut, New work requirements um, on food stamps and federal welfare benefits. But there's an age cap on that. Yes. The the new work requirements will sunset for SNAP in 2030. Some permitting changes that Republicans had been seeking. But that's a separate bill, right? No, no, that will be in there. I mean, but they were they're really quite minimal. I mean, the kind of changes that Republicans really want, the White House fought to a draw. And I'll, I'll just quickly say right. that I think the, the biggest Republican win here is of the $80 billion that the White House approved last year for the Internal Revenue Service's expansion, the Republicans got $20 billion. So really a quarter of that huge initiative from the Biden administration, that $20 billion will be rescinded. And, you know, Republicans really do not like the idea of more aggressive tax enforcement. And this money was going to be used for improving taxpayer services, call lines. And so 
this will continue to make it harder for the IRS to rebuild. So th- that's kind of the broad contours of the deal. Right. They're psyched because their donors might be less likely to get audited, though actually the reporting has shown that the IRS tends to actually sort of stick into people who are poor. Right. Well, for now. Right. But like yeah. that, the whole idea was like, let's change that. Right. Which is which actually would be good. But I always think of you as as I read you all the time and, you know, you obviously are a straight reporter, but you tend to be a little more on the progressive side. Am I allowed to say that? Should I not say that? I'm allowed to uh, just be silent in response. Maybe. OK, great. <laughs> I had expected that this would be a negotiation where the progressives might be slightly unhappy. But they would, you know, they would realize that like the 14th Amendment, as much as I would love to see the 14th Amendment invoked, it would come down to some very scary 11th hour stuff relying on a very Trumpy court or minting the enormously valuable coin, which, again, you know, you're in unprecedented territory might work, but could the stakes are very high to start doing unprecedented stuff. But I actually think this is not as much of a lose for progressives as a lot of us were expecting. I think a lot of this is expectation setting. I think if you had said six months ago that the White House would have to give up a quarter of its IRS expansion as a price to get Republicans not to blow up the economy. They would have been a little disappointed in that. But I will say, I mean, about a week and a half ago, I was writing a story, a 1700 word story that I had written that was never published, which is just the most painful thing for a journalist. I'm the real victim here. But the thing that they were looking at that I was writing about the prospect of was from the math I was doing based on what I was sharing from negotiations was an 8 to 12% cut to the part of the federal budget that's most important for anti-poverty initiatives. And in the context of that, as the barrel that we were looking down the end of, the IRS changes are like, from the progressive perspective, you know, like a little slap on the wrist. I think if you're weighing on the one hand, trying to make sure that the poorest people in this country have life-saving services and you protect that, you prevent that from getting hit and the price you have to pay is making it a little easier for rich people to cheat on their taxes. I think that's a trade that progressives make every day and twice on Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, that was my sense. And I think that the MAGA crew had hoped they were going to be able to blow up the federal government. Well, I also think like from their perspective, it makes sense that, you know, we've had this whole evolution from the 2010s and the Tea Party and this sort of deep ideological ferment in the Republican Party about spending. And a lot of us, myself included, you know, saw the Trump era as kind of a retreat. Trump just said, you know what, I don't really care about any of this Paul Ryan stuff. I will increase the debt by more than any president in American history by over $7 trillion. And then Republicans came back in and said, we're going to go back, like just let's do Rip Van Winkle and pretend like the last four years never happened and reincarnate our Tea Party selves. And I think one possible interpretation, we'll have to see how this shakes out, but one possible reading of what's happened here is that the Trump effect on the party's ideological core actually was real. And McCarthy wanted to get an own on Biden. And maybe he did own him, you know, like he, he Biden was like, I'm not going to negotiate. And clearly Biden did. But when it came to the s- substance of the agreement, the Republicans don't seem like that actually agitated about the like discretionary non-defense numbers over 10 years, which is to me potentially like the Trump 
influence on the party. So interesting. I mean, that is the weird thing about Trump, right? And again, nobody is saying anything good about Trump here. The guy is trying to kill American democracy and working hard to do it. But it is interesting to me, you know, he does this populist rhetoric. So he has said, you know, I mean, again, is it true? You know, who knows? But he has been pretending to be pro-social safety net. There's this interesting coalitional element here that Trump has has as a, you know as a mechanism for sort of con- overtaking the Republican Party kind of had to make peace with some of its major players including sort right. of the Paul Ryan wing and so in the Trump administration there were all these people who were fanatically devoted to cutting the this part of the budget and Trump I think despite all the anti-democratic impulses and actions that you're accurately alluding to Trump like kind of thought these guys were a little weird. Like he Trump is like a star billionaire playboy. Like he's not like devoted his life to lowering non-defense discretionary spending. Like he wants to do what's popular. And this like almost like Greek tragedy element to some of these like advisors around him who talk about Trump in these like highly idealized terms. Like they worship Trump and then they spend like years trying to cut spending. And Trump is like, you guys are weird. Like, I know you love me, but like, I don't actually, I'm like, they're like, we Give a sir, shit we must do spending. this. And he's like, I'm right. going to like go to the golf course and like hit some long drives. And like, you guys can like scream about how McCarthy sacrificed the budget. And it's like, he doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, he did want to crash the economy. I mean, he said, don't make a deal. The impulse of Trumpism, I mean, I was surprised there weren't, and again, you know, this deal has not passed yet, and if it doesn't pass, we're all completely fucked. I mean, let's be honest. But I was surprised that there weren't more people on the Trumpy right who are like, let's just blow up the economy so that Trump gets elected in 24. I think it is really surprising. I, I had the same reaction, and it was not what I was anticipating. Like, I thought right now Trump would be like constantly like posting on his, um, you know, website. Constantly truthing on his truth social. It would be a true thing about how McCarthy was like a rhino and the deal was terrible and everything. And I wonder if they have polling that it's like not good to like destroy the economy. Like maybe they had someone who said that. It must be because there's that's the only way any of this is happening. And the polling I saw showed that Biden would get blamed for destroying the economy. But it must be that mo- both of them will get blamed and that that's why they're doing it. It is interesting because DeSantis is like out there saying that this is a bad deal and like trying to carve out a lane to the right of Trump on this. But like, do conservative voters really like, are they really that worked up about like the baseline for like the CBO report? You know, it's just like, I don't know. No, they don't give a shit about cutting spending. I mean, that's the thing that, I mean, really Trumpism has brought to bear is that they don't care about the deficit. The deficit is bullshit. If it's a way to starve poor kids to keep them from having free breakfast, then they care about the deficit. But if it's going to deprive billionaires of tax cuts, then no way. Yeah, or or, or you know, in, ensure that, that billionaires don't face higher tax enforcement. The IRS. Yeah. Yes. Talk about a deal so, Trump might like, you know. It's so sleazy. So let me ask you, now you're, there's going to be a lot of complaining on 
the right. I mean, talk to me about Nancy Mace. She's very mad. Yeah. She's the um, South Carolina woman, right? Yeah. I mean, the people who are the maddest about this deal seem to be like the Chip Roy crew, though he's going to vote it through rules, it sounds like. The Tea Party crew, though some of them are on board. I mean, that's the thing that's like baffling about this. And again, perhaps we were too cynical, but like Jim Jordan supports it. (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think a lot of people really did kind of underestimate Kevin McCarthy's ability to get a deal done. I, I was just talking with someone about do you remember when Nancy Pelosi called him a moron? Yeah, he is a moron. And then he printed the shirt, the T-shirt. <laughs> he sold yes. T-shirts on his website that said, like, I'm a moron. <laughs> yeah. for, for owning this. <laughs> I, I remember because Pelosi's staff tweeted back, like, this is the first, like, Republican truth in advertising. <laughs> but, but he, like, he seems to have, like, tamped down a lot of the the rabble rousers in his caucus. And I, I think we should not discount the fact that if the debt ceiling deal got did not get done, right, we would be looking at a 10 to 20% decline in the stock market. That happened even before the debt ceiling was breached in 2011. And yeah. remember, Republicans like hear all the time from business leaders, they themselves tend to be more affluent and They're highly attuned to the stock market and CEOs did not want to see the stock market drop by 15% again, which I think is understandable. And so when we look at that, at sort of the elements in play here, this is a big countervailing force on the anti-spending Republicans that, that they, if Jim Jordan can say to his, you know, the right-wing activists, we got a good deal that Biden didn't want to give us anything on, then he can, you know, sort of vote for the deal and not have to deal, you know, have to handle large business interests yelling at him. Well, the thing I was struck by was that it seems like McCarthy and we were all criticizing him, but it seems as if McCarthy has brought the right flank in and had somehow been able to control them by making giving them a seat at the table. I think that's right. I mean, the fact that even the House Freedom Caucus members that you've spoken to in the last few days, they're not even like even the most right wing of them who are going to vote against this. And, and to be clear, we've known for, for months that he would lose 30 to 35 votes right off the bat just by raising the debt ceiling. But those are the loudest voices. And even they are not discussing deposing McCarthy, which is the threat that everyone thought that they were going to make. So they've, they've really put down their weapons here. And the sort of the crucial question has always been not the 30 most right wing members, but like sort of the next 60 like, where do they go? And by all indications, they are actually quite comfortable with the deal. And I think it goes back to what we were just discussing, that like their voters are not that upset. And if they have to deal with business groups in their districts yelling at them to get this done, it's not it's not ultimately that hard of a vote, especially if Trump isn't like running on the sidelines, you know, jumping right. up and down. Or having- Trying to get them primaried. Yeah. But the, but the other thing that's interesting is like Trump doesn't have... And I think we've seen this. Trump does not have the power he used to have, even with the primary, maybe in the Ruby Reds. If Trump tweeted about you, like your life was a misery. You know, you would be like constant death threats for a month. His base is not that same amount of mad that they used to be. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's a low bar. (laughs) but I mean, I don't know. The polls still suggest to me that he, I know this is just boring sort of pundit talk, but he's 
<laughs> he's doing quite well. I think they can't beat him, but... No, I think you're right that the that the air has gone out of the balloon. Yeah. I think when people go to jail because of stuff you've told them to do, they are slightly more hesitant to do stuff you told them to do. Yeah, and maybe, you know, Congress has the same reaction with blowing up the world economy. <laughs> right. I mean, so tell me what the timetable is now. I think they're going to pass this thing on Wednesday, maybe Thursday. And then it goes it goes to the Senate when? I think Wednesday evening. I mean, these guys love nothing more than like getting out of town as soon as possible. <laughs> and frankly, I fully support that. So. I mean, they were out this weekend. It's not like anybody stayed back in D.C. over the weekend, I guess. Molly, they might have to do two consecutive days of work in June. (laughs) They get so mad when you say that. Even like the one, you know, they're like, no, we do our district work. I'm like, okay. I simultaneously think that they are quite lazy, but I also think that I would hate it seems really it's miserable. A job. Like I, it would, yeah. It's you're like terrible. one of a gazillion people who has like effectively no power. Almost certainly, you like have to like lie to everyone all the time about what you actually think. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like such a bad job. Yeah, it just seems awful. Like you can't like work from home whenever you feel like it, unless you're, you know. Oh. I, don't know, I guess you can. Diane Feinstein, I gotta get in trouble. Yeah. The people I've talked to have said that if it makes it through the House, it will make it through the Senate. Yeah. Especially with Mitch on board. Yeah. Yeah. As I was saying, it just sort of feels like a very anticlimactic end to, to all this drama. But, you know, I think that's good. The story I'm working on now is that Biden has sort of teased the idea that he will, after this is over, invoke the 14th Amendment. This is kind of what you were referring to earlier. The White House had this fear that if they went the unilateral route during a crisis, then the debt issuance in violation of the debt ceiling would have been legally contested and still could have sparked a financial crisis. Certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. So what Biden is suggesting is maybe they will um, what he said on Sunday, even though the remarks were kind of confusing, he sort of suggested that they can make that they're, they're going to explore doing that, even sort of ab- absent a crisis, that maybe they can try to go forward with that when we're not on the brink. The problem with that approach is that courts might not take it up. There's no reason for a judicial, the judicial branch to rule on something that's not a live issue. Theoretical. Yeah. Yeah. And so I will say, and I hope someone timestamps this and throws this back at me. If I am still like spending my life covering this when it comes up again in two years, I, Which you will, I will need to rethink some major life decisions. Congratulations. Okay, Molly. That's it. We're out of time. Thank you. That's perfect. All right. Thank you, guys. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jongfast seems that Elon's up to no good because he thinks it's funny to own the libs. Really interesting. And by interesting, I mean quite stupid. Elon Musk took away blue check verification on Twitter. That opened the door to a lot of impersonation, including parody accounts. There is a AOC parody account that said it would like to date Elon, Elon then responded with the fire emoji. I would like to never have to talk about Twitter again. Our moment of fuckery comes from our terrifying 
CEO of Twitter, Elon Musk, engaging with parody accounts and making it impossible to tell who is real and who is fake. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.